वेलकम टू सिंट टॉक अराउंड द टेबल टूडे डिस्कस द मेनी मैनर्स ऑफ फॉलोइंग विल थिंक अबाउट द फैक्ट एक्ट एंड इंट्यूशन कंसर्निंग फॉल एंड फ्री फॉल वाई एंड हाउ डू थिंग्स फॉल what is it like to fall into a black hole what is its relation to the geometry of space time what do things fall towards is everything falling towards everything else are black holes truly bald and what is the interior like how did gravitation go from being particular to universal is falling different from floating does intuition help anymore in theory building does an apple fall only vertically if dropped and what would happen in the very long run would all the black holes evaporate away or would the whole universe become one large black hole We are pleased and privileged to have two sin talkers with us here today. Professor Samir Mathur, he is a theoretical physicist working in the area of string theory and black holes. He is at the Ohio State University. And Professor Babu Thaliyat, he is a civil engineer who later moved into the area of theoretical philosophy. He is currently in JNU New Delhi. His area of research is early modern mechanical philosophy. So, uh, Samir, why don't you set the ball rolling with you? Um, maybe in a somewhat unusual place to, and uh, if if I happen to be just outside a black hole, um, what happens from there onwards? Um, is there such a thing as falling into a black hole would one bounce away what's the surface like is there such a thing as a surface why don't we start in this particular place and we would maybe use this as a site to understand more generally what falling itself is as 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 a phenomena as an, as a manifestation of a bunch of things that play out why don't we go there and we'll see where we land up so it's interesting that you've asked the one question to which nobody can be sure that he knows the answer <laughs> so the if we really understood the answer to this question completely clearly and everyone agreed with it we would really have clarified a lot about the fundamental structure of physics right so in fact the main dispute among people has been exactly about what happens at the boundary of a black hole which we call the horizon so the traditional picture of the surface of a black hole which comes to us from einstein theory of general relativity is quite simple at the horizon a person uh, who is just outside the horizon will just be dragged in without feeling anything particular he'll just float in but then that place the horizon is special in the sense that he'll never be able to float out so in a sense it's a zone of no return you you go in and never come out it's the boundary of no return the boundary of no return but what's very important is that you don't feel it's the boundary of no return there's nothing special to feel there and an analogy i often like to think about there is suppose there's a river and the river has 
some flow speed, maybe five miles an hour somewhere, maybe 10 miles an hour somewhere else. But you're a swimmer in the river and you can only swim at five miles an hour. That's your maximum swim rate. I'm going to use that as an algae for the speed of light. Nobody can move faster than the speed of light. So suppose you can swim at five miles an hour, either way, down the river, up the river. So the river is not flowing. You can go five miles an hour downstream or upstream, symmetrical on both sides. But as you come closer to the black hole, it's like the river is flowing towards one side. Let's call that downstream. So now, if you swim downstream, your speed will add to the river. You'll go quickly downstream. But you can also go upstream because the river is going at maybe two miles an hour. You can still, with some struggle, go backwards. At some point, when the river speeds up to five miles an hour, you can go downstream. You can go at 10 miles an hour total because the river was at five and you were at five. But you actually can't go upstream at all because you can swim at five miles an hour, but the river is flowing downstream at five miles an hour. So you just can't turn back. But you wouldn't notice it if you were actually swimming in a river and the speed of the river kept increasing as maybe it was going down a hill. You wouldn't notice that now you've passed the point from which you can never turn back. And that's the analogy with which we understand what is actually happening near the horizon of a black So it's hole. some kind of a whirlpool. It's some kind of a conical whirlpool. And you can think of it as a whirlpool, yes. But is, is there a center? Is there a center of a black hole? There is a center. So and as what's you, it like from the horizon to that center? So as you go radially in from the horizon towards the center, the speed of this river, which we're using as it as an analogy, that speed keeps increasing. So th if you go further in at the horizon, if the river was going at five miles an hour, your swim speed was also five miles an hour. So you could like barely stay there if you're paddling backwards at full speed. Once you go a little further in towards the center, now the river is at seven miles an hour and you can move at only five. So you have no choice. You have to get dragged further in. And then you go further in, now the river is moving at 100 miles an hour. And then as you reach towards the center, the speed basically goes towards infinity in this toy model. And at that so point... So, but even there, Samir, just to be clear, there's a gradient of speed from the horizon to the center. There's or, absolutely or, or, a gradient. So, but it's like in, in terms of space-time and curvature and so on, it's not, it's not infinite curvature or whatever right after the horizon. No, so that's the beautiful fact. Yes, indeed, the speed is increasing, but increasing fairly gently. So the bigger the black hole, the more gentle it is. So in fact, in a very big black hole, you will notice nothing at the horizon. But is there something is, in terms of matter, in a material sense, and we'll maybe get to Babu and discuss this materiality aspect a little bit. In terms of matter, is there anything between the horizon and the center? No. Like, is so there matter? It, it, it would be very important if there was. But because of this thing that we just mentioned, that nothing can actually move uh, faster than the speed of light, everything which once it goes into the horizon, it can't even stay at one place. It has to keep getting sucked inwards because even at the speed of light, you can't even turn out. I or think even the question is whether place. that sucking in happens instantaneously. Um, no. So when a star, for example, is collapsing to make a black hole, it takes uh, some time. It moves faster and faster, approaching the speed of light as it's going towards its final uh, singularity. But uh, it does take time. It will move in some time and then reach the center. And anything who's falling in through the horizon will speed up and up and then reach the center. But it's a sharp gradient in the sense that if, if, if it was me who was the unfortunate person who had fallen into the black hole, the 
my head and my foot would would get uh, would move at very different speeds very much so so if you were near the horizon at that place the difference is not so much hmm. so you may not notice that much it depends on the size of the black hole if the black hole was very big there'd be hardly any difference between your feet and your head at that point but as you fell further in that difference increases because of the gradient we were just talking about and just to be clear samir we touched upon this like a minute ago there is matter between horizon and the center no so there is no matter once the black hole has stabilized so everything gets sucked into the center if nothing new was falling in so it's empty it's empty so it's very important that everything gets sucked to the center and all the mass has vanished at a singularity at r equal to 0 and all the stuff outside all the way up to the horizon and then also outside till wherever you find the next star is all just the vacuum and as it keeps sucking in more and more as more and more things fall into this black hole the the horizon keeps going more and more out so as the, the radius increases yes the radius of this point of no return keeps increasing it's linearly so proportional to the, the mass the black hole the 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 farther the horizon or the greater the radius so exactly. that be okay exactly now what is this void uh, babu i mean i think this it's, it's it's a curious creature right i mean at least from the little picture that we formed so far and we'll keep making the sharper as we go uh, is you thought about gravity and gravitation for a little bit and at least from a historical standpoint and how this notion has developed uh, over the last 3 4 500 years um, is gravity itself a matter related phenomenon does it does it need matter for it to be there? of course we kind of know the answer but how's that thought progressed well again you're asking a very difficult question as though it uh, appears to be very simple sure let's start from your example like uh which are the modes in which uh, things can fall an apple for example so when you analyze it in philosophy or in science you divide that into the nature and the structure of falling mm-hmm. so first you think the nature uh, that relates to the existence of gravity and the structure is obviously a mathematical structure so the point when is when you say nature of gravity what do you mean because gravity I mean, I think that's the question in a way, and you started off the nature of the existence of gravity. Mm. Yeah, so this is this is how, like, uh, for example, in philosophy, we have this most fundamental discipline, the ontology, which is the nature of existence. Sure. So that's the question you are asking. So what's the ontology of gravity? The ontology of uh, gravity, which is very difficult to answer. So uh, I would say, but gravity cannot precede matter because there is matter in the universe. There is gravity. Would that be would that be fair to say? No, the question is how does gravity exist? Right. In the same way, how does a force exist? Sure. Which was a puzzle or an aporia in the framework of mechanical philosophy, because mechanical philosophy was a framework in the early modernity, where a movement can only occur through contact and materiality. Sure. And here is a phenomenon uh, in which the bodies can attract each other in a vacuum. or at a distance action at a distance action at a so distance so it doesn't need contact or collision it, does, it doesn't or, need contact of course even if you think of falling on the earth uh, still uh, we don't consider the air air resistance or anything any material in between so a body attracts another body at a distance without any contact was it puzzling for the for the early philosophers and scientists of course, thought about it. it's puzzling even today but even today it's puzzling even today it's puzzling so then there's a famous example that uh, Isaac Newton uh, who discovered or postulated the universal gravity was desperately trying for a long time 
to find the causation, the cause of gravity and magnetism. What causes gravity? What causes gravity? And not just what causes gravity and what causes gravitational movement. So the famous experiment that he placed a a uh, magnet beneath a glass plate mm -hmm. and a piece of iron on that and it can still move that piece of iron and that contradicts the entire law of mechanical philosophy and the principle so the great scientist who postulated the universal gravitation never believed in that <laughs> so he sent a letter to the bentley the master of trinity at that time and he said it is so absurd that bodies can attract at a distance without <laughs> without contact yeah so but then then uh, uh, the point is the reality he has to, we have to accept things falling down but the causality we don't know so here there is a problem so there is as there is no answer or at least there was no answer to this question of no, why the, do things fall down you mean by answer uh, an answer of causation so every yes. answer is an explanation sure. in science and philosophy and uh, if you give the final explanation it will become an axiom so the axioms are just explaining things and without giving any final causation yeah so let me just explain a few things i mean i I've, i've been working on this for a long time a wonderful correlation between mathematics and mathematical sciences and mechanics and optics and gravity belongs to the science of mechanics yeah so the mechanical and optical models can be mathematized but it is still not mathematical models so mathematics is a representation of mechanical and optical structures and you can work on it and you can discover new thing or you can create axioms but the like you asked this question of existence a line that represents a ray of life or a movement of an inertial movement is still not mechanical or optical it's a mathematical construction so th but this co correlation existed throughout the history and interestingly when the nature of mathematics changed both mechanics and optics changed from the greek uh, synthetic mathematics uh, to the cartesian analytical geometry and later the uh, non euclidean geometry so i'm very much interested in the influence of you're coming to the riemannian uh, yeah riemannian and gaussian and all um for example for aristotle uh, in the uh, physics so dimensioning the space for the greeks means dimensioning a, cl a a closed space so for them it is front and back and uh, top and bottom right and left <laughs> yeah so right. the entire universe is closed i mean for aristotle the heaven is the limit of the space but now for aristotle why did things fall down did he have a clue well they the greeks had this notion of gravitation the greeks had the, the but only the particular gravity not the infinite gravity which is the move that in a way newton made he went from particular gravity to universal gravity that's very interesting because uh, i would say i mean in german we say a zeitgeist a spirit of time so the time where descartes uh, introduced the cartesian uh, analytical geometry uh, with a different dimensioning that is uh, from origo from one point length breadth and height and it stretches to the infinite space and there were even uh, uh, philosophers in the medieval scholasticism like uh, nicolas von cusa uh, who f first in the first uh, the first philosopher in the history who imagined an infinite space so there is a famous observation like if the space is unlimited every point is a central point right so something like that which is something that physicists today agree to um yes right 
does it mean that the very fact that there is such a thing as gravitation, obviously there are aporia there which are not fully resolved, does it, does it therefore imply in a rigorous kind of way that the universe is infinite? No, that it does not. Because in fact, when Einstein himself conceived of the universe with the theory of general relativity, his initial picture was that the universe was in the shape of a finite ball. Right. It's just that there was no special point on that ball. Because if you have a surface of a sphere, so when I think of a ball, I don't mean the inside, I just mean the surface. Uh, so now it would be a three-dimensional ball rather than the two-dimensional surface so of a for, ball. So even when Einstein was doing a special theory, for him the picture was the surface of a very large sphere. That was no, the No, that was not special relativity. At that time it was still flat, infinite space. Hmm. But when he moved to general relativity, he had to picture the uh, some shape. Because sure. now space and time can be curved. And then he thought the universe might just be a round ball, a three-dimensional surface. D with, with an inside or what? Not with an inside. It's a, it's a surface of a ball, the ball you could imagine in four dimensions. So the surface is the three dimensions that we see around us. So it looks to us that we are living in an infinite space of three dimensions, but that's just because we can't see very far. We, it may, may actually be living on the surface of a ball in four dimensions, which is a three-dimensional three surface, and just so big that it looks uh, almost infinite to us. But it's a very big ball. And that's completely consistent with everything that we might so know even So what does today. falling mean in that kind of a world? So I think with Einstein's general relativity, the idea of falling itself became very strange. One might even say the idea went away. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's so beautiful. Einstein was very much motivated with the idea of the elevator or you could go back to Galileo's experiment at Pisa. Right. If you drop balls the of different... The space lab and all that in a way, right? Right. If you drop different materials, they'll all fall at the same speed. Right. So then you might wonder, are they falling at all? Because if everybody's going together, one person doesn't see the other person as falling. This whole business they might of them, It's all relative. You might as well not be falling. Right. So then he started thinking that maybe gravitation isn't a force at all and nobody's actually falling under gravity, what we think of as falling is just things in their natural motion and that's why they all move together because that is what is not falling for everybody. And what is perceived as falling is just movement on this curved space-time fabric? Or? Yes. So if, you, if the fabric is curved and you're trying to move on that, but you're trying to move as if you are not falling, just going straight. But if the fabric of space-time is curved, it will give... Uh, a effect which would be different from the effect when, for example, it was not curved. And that effect is what we call gravitation. And is gravitation, so I, I think Samir has made this interesting point here, was it, was it straightforward to call it a force? No, I can start from that point and this very much that interests me a lot because uh, uh, now the question is uh, uh, the falling, the nature of falling. And um, uh, a thing of Newton discovering this vertical gravity by seeing a falling apple falling vertically to the ground. Okay. Towards the center of the earth. Towards the way. center of the earth. I mean, provided uh, you think earth as a sphere and it is falling directly was, to the... Did that conception exist at that point? Was it, it, was, it, was it a spherical earth at that point? Yes, yes, it existed. It existed. Even, and there, there, there were even uh, other notions of uh, gravity by Robert Hooke 
Kepler and Robelwall. The only difference is these gravities were particular gravity with limits, and only the Newton could postulate the infinite gravity. So when you say with limits, there is a body and there is an area around it where the gravitational no, forces. The particular gravity means Earth has a gravity, the Moon has a gravity, the Sun has a gravity. But the universe itself doesn't have gravity. It's not universal. It's not universal. Right. But this particular problem. Uh, for example, the famous experiment that uh, the equivalence principle of Einstein, that lift experiment. In fact, the thought experiment was if you jump out of your flat, I mean the sixth floor, uh, what will happen? You won't feel weight. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the old problem of Galileo and later Newton saw that's that. That's inertial and gravitational yeah, mass inertia, being the same. Inertial mass and the gravitational mass will equal out. And so that's why you are, you are not. It's actually the answer was given by Newton. And but. Einstein repeating that in his space lab and the gravity lab experiment. But interestingly, the first model was a vertical gravity, something, uh, a, a, a mass hanged from the top, and that gravitates in the same way in a static uh, gravi uh, gravity lab and in a moving space lab. Now the question is, why then well, he... And what do you mean by vertical gravity? I mean, just like the falling of an apple, gravitating towards the center of the Earth. So the direction of movement has just one vector, it's, it's towards... Yes, it is vertical, it is just like the Newtonian gravitation. But the revolutionary step that uh, Einstein took was introducing a ray of light, a horizontal structure, and speculating that this ray of light will bend. Now the question is, the things can fall in two ways, either purely vertical or horizontal in a projectile, which was not unknown. I mean, the Galileo experimented with that too, the projectiles and all. But somehow, I would say the paradigm was the Euclidean geometry with the Euclidean space. That's why I would say they, didn't, they might not have thought about the projectile way of falling down. But then later with uh, Einstein in 19th century or 20th century, because the entire 19th century, you know, that the advent of non-Euclidean geometries, and so this curvature of space was quite known at that time. So when you introduce a horizontal structure, a body uh, thrown into that lab, it will bend down. Does this like. horizontal vertical thing make sense to you, Samir? I mean, how does one how does one think of this? Yeah, so like the other way to integrate this with another question is that if you like, what does gravitation act on? Does it act only on matter? So, uh, in Einstein's view, gravitation isn't a force at, at all. all. Because it's embodied in the curvature of space-time, anything living on that space-time will feel the gravity. But gravitation is a force, right? So, for Einstein, he would say no. What is it for you? Uh, so, I would also say that gravitation is not a force. and Isn't it like one of the four fundamental forces, this, that? Yes, indeed. We do call it that. But I think <laughs> so. Help us, help us touch the nuance here. Why do you hesitate from calling it a force? Right. So as you said, we have four fundamental forces. You would like all the forces to be unified. It's all been the been the dream of everyone to get a unified field. It's not theory. getting unified because gravitation isn't a force to begin with. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> gravity somehow has been beautifully incorporated into the curvature of space time. Now, it was a dream of many people right from that time onwards to be able to integrate, let's say, other forces like electromagnetism also into the curvature of space-time. It's interesting that quite early on, people made those efforts. And we today, when we try to join the forces together, we try something very similar to what Kaludza was doing in 1918. 
And it was the idea of having one extra dimension. So we live in three space dimensions and one time. And right then, just a few years after Einstein's theory of general relativity, people started thinking if we had one more dimension of space, and then we had curvature in these four space and one time dimension, maybe we could use this extra dimension of space to somehow simulate the effects of electromagnetism. And then even that we could say is not a force. Right. So we would like to kick them all out from being forces. Make them make them aspects of space. Make them way. aspects of space. Space. And in some sense, that's still what we are trying to do with things like string theory, where we now have ten dimensions, and we hope that with all that, all the four fundamental forces will all become part of the curvature of this ten-dimensional. So there is time. nothing fundamental about forces itself, or what? That's right. The notion of force has changed a lot over the maybe last four hundred years since Newton. So it started off exactly as you just said about the force for something which makes two things. In a way, Samir is going back in the direction of Aristotle, who would just say no, that you no, know. No, no, no. He made a very interesting because point because he's he's making it the nature of yeah the world yeah, itself. But let me add to what you have said. It's very important. <laughs> this all started with a lecture. Einstein given in the Prussian Academy, I think in 1927, I think or 17, I don't remember. It's about geometry and experience, geometry und Erfahrung, phenomenal. Yeah, in this more short essay, Einstein was trying to establish gravity not as a mechanical phenomenon but as a geometrical phenomenon, and he defines the infinity other than the Euclidean infinity of infinity of a curved space. So that is the beginning of his understanding, and since then, uh, gravity is considered more or less as a geometrical phenomena, well, which is not as a force. But Babu, why why the word experience there? I mean, is, is it is it to say that? Well, the um, the what we experience on Earth, maybe on the on the surface of Moon, is only a limited experience, and uh, in a cosmological perspective. The gravity has to be considered as a mathematical or a geometrical phenomena, which I don't really agree because there you see how the mechanical intuition uh, is separated from the mathematical intuition, and uh, that is exactly the departure from the early modern uh, mechanical philosophy, where the mechanical and optical structures were thought in mathematical forms, but still the intuitions were mechanical. I think the question is whether there's something universal about it. Now, whether or not gravitation is a force is for you and your colleagues to you know wrestle out. Uh, but th there is something universal about gravitation. I mean, all these gravitational constants. The I mean, is there something universal about it? Yes, very much so. And I think that's what makes gravity. A kind of force which you can do away with and embody in the curvature of space-time. So going back to this experiment of Galileo, if he had two bodies and they fell at the same speed, you could then say, well, maybe neither of them is falling. Maybe they are both just staying where they should be. It's just the space-time which is curved. Now, if they had been moving at different rates, like suppose they were charged bodies, electrically charged bodies, and we were looking at electrical forces and not gravitational forces, a proton might Accelerate one way, a neutron might feel no force, and the electron would accelerate the opposite way. In that case, you cannot actually absorb that effect so easily into the curvature of space-time because if you absorb that into the curvature, then you would say, "Hey, if this curvature says the proton, the body should be going this way, then why is that body heading the other way?" But if everybody is actually heading the same way, 
then you could say well that is the trajectory of no force that is equal to not being accelerated and let's call that the natural state of being and all the bodies will follow that natural trajectory but the way or the manner of falling de- presumably depends on all sorts of things right it's it's mass it's spin it's charge um do those things come handy in so that was the difficulty if you just look at the mass then gravity will act on it and you can absorb that away and you can say i put in the curvature of space time because all bodies will fall at the same time but now if the bodies have different charge and there are electrical forces around now you're in trouble because now they are going to behave differently so, so how what happens you... inside a black hole for example do the other forces exist for a second if you think of all of these as forces yes so you can have it, a black is hole is it because it's so massy that it's only gravitation force at, at work inside a black hole so in practice it's mostly mass and it's mostly only gravity but in reality because what do you in, mean by in practice i mean is there I'll electromagnetic by... force inside a black hole are there strong and weak forces inside a black hole So in principle all the forces are there like as math, as physicists we think about black holes which have electric charge and if you take a black hole which has positive electric charge then a proton would get repelled away from it electron would get attracted much more and a neutron would just go in feeling only the gravity now in real life most objects in the sky they do carry some charge but not a lot of charge so the earth also actually has a huge negative charge uh, so different objects fall differently So different objects fall differently. The differences are not too much because the gravitational forces are much larger than the electric forces. But that's not a conceptual issue. It's just the way things worked out in the world around us. But yes, indeed, uh, that's what makes it so difficult to actually incorporate uh, the other forces into something basic like curvature. So going back to the initial example that we started with, if one were falling inside a black hole. and if one were to picture the trajectory and the 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 dynamics of how it happens what would it look like does one fall right into the center of the black hole like a rocket does one float because you use the word float somewhere does one just go about in a in a brownian motion kind of way is is one is one spinning into it um do this do or don't matter yeah, so it's very much like how you would fall on the earth if you fell in radially you would just keep going in radially you wouldn't spin or do anything else which is strange but you need not fall in radially most objects would fall in at some other angle like for example if you're falling towards the earth you could just be dropped in towards the center or you could be started off with a tangential kick and then you might go partly in an orbit and spiral in so is the is the way the moon is falling on the earth yes. in a way right so the moon for example never ends up falling because by the time it falls closer it's moved somewhere else and then it's trying to fall again right so then all kinds of centripetal centrifugal forces right. those kind of things so, are at work very good since so the black hole you could actually try to spiral in but the important thing is once you're inside the horizon you can't keep orbiting at the same radius because that's what we said about the speed of light to stay at any one radius you would have to be moving faster than the speed of light so you will always be dragged in you could have to spiral but you still spiral in you can't keep orbiting at a given radius inside the horizon so yes things don't have to fall radially things can spiral in and they do but as far as you are concerned a black hole i mean you would demystify it a little bit it's it's just like any other celestial body Yes, from outside it is. The difference with other celestial bodies is that they don't have this strange feature that they are empty all the way down to a center and at the center they have an infinite density point. This getting to an infinite density is the curious thing about a black hole because everywhere else in nature we have a sense of balance. Like you have the sun, the gravity And there must be something wrong, right? And what does it mean to have infinite density? Well, that's the whole point. Something is definitely wrong if you reach an infinity. Which, because which means that it certainly does not have infinite density, right? 
You would like to think so, right? But the point it has is, to be wrong. It's wrong in the sense that if we have any equations like Einstein's equations, once the density reaches infinity, the equations fail because both sides of the equation become infinity equals infinity, and we have no predictive value. So if you ask what happens after you reach the infinite density point for something which is falling in, you say, "Look, I can't answer because it's reached infinity, and my equations are useless to me." But the problem is that because of this problem we mentioned with the speed of light, you are nobody can hover. You have to keep going further in. You find that you are getting crushed to infinite density, and you need some other phenomena, maybe something quantum mechanical or something outside Einstein's theory of general relativity, to save you from this infinity. And that's why the theory of black holes became so interesting. That if you stayed with an Einstein theory of relativity, it was just a curious object, but it was an object with a problem because right. it, you get an infinite infinity in the center. And now the point was by bringing something completely different, like quantum mechanics, can you somehow save yourself from that? How do you grapple with this, Babu? What is infinite density? And I, I know, I know you don't do physics, so I don't want to ask you a physics question. But well, it, 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 to me, it's like the classic example of a Neporia, right? I mean, you 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 don't do a bunch of clever math, you you do whatever you can, but then you say, you know, okay, so this should have infinite density. Makes no sense. Well, it's so difficult question because uh, I tend to think in the mechanical way of um, right. Yeah, but then uh, coming back to a point that you have mentioned, this falling of moon, for example, the uh, the original speculation was not horizontal projectile, but vertical. It was uh, the famous correspondence between Robert Hooke and Newton. I think in seventeen sixty seven uh, about if a body falls to the center of Earth, what trajectory it follow, you know, the the way. And uh, Newton suggested something which was wrong, and uh, who corrects that, and then Newton again uh, improves that model, and that's the beginning of Principia of Newton. But so later, what, what was Newton's earlier suggestion? The first, it will uh, follow a curve and end up in the center. But then Hooke said, no, it won't end up in the center. It will, it will, it will end up, but after so many... Uh, after many iterations. A kind of uh, spiral. After many rotations. After creating a spiral. Right. You know? And Newton again got the idea of a different spiral. And then the way of thinking changed. Then Newton experimented with this from a tower, if you throw, I mean, from a very high tower, uh, horizontally, and at some point of time, this body will rotate. The did Earth. Newton know that Earth is rotating? Obviously, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, so he, does, he knew, does that he change things? No, 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 no. But what I want to say <laughs> is, uh, in uh, for scientists, there are certain strategies to choose the premises. Right. I don't think I don't say I won't say that they are telling lies or they are telling truths, but they have priorities. They may take one premise and they may ignore other premise. And depending on that, the science that they, de they develop will change. That's why same with Einstein also. My question is, why he ignored the vertical gravity and preferred the horizontal projectile movement? And that clearly shows the curvature of the space. So there is something because he worked with Grossman. So what who, was it guided by? Yeah, I think maybe you're about to yeah, answer that. Yeah, that was the time where field theory was invented. Uh, by I mean, there were magnetic field like Faraday and Maxwell and uh, mathematized by Grossman. And uh, this was the greatest fascination at that time. And Einstein apparently influenced by this. Yeah, And then uh, the mathematical models definitely influenced the mechanical intuition and the development of a new branch of mechanics. Well, I don't question the legitimacy of that process in the history, but I only wonder how this correlation worked throughout the history. 
changing from the synthetic Greek mathematics to analytical early modern mathematics to the Einsteinian or the non-Euclidean geometries, etc., etc. And how much of a role does intuition play in all of this? Well, intuition plays a great role because you ask this question of experiencing. Yeah. Like, what is our experience? Our experience is an intuition. Uh, well, I worked on structural intuition as introduced by Martin Kemp. So he gives a very simple example, like, for example, if someone kicks a football, a penalty kick, no? or may, maybe it's not a good example, maybe a free kick from 30 meters. Sure. So it's common that he won't kick straight. So he will try to spin the ball and the ball will take a kind of curvature. And, and if it's a wonderful pl player like... Uh, um, I don't know. Um, somebody. Somebody, Whoever. somebody. I mean, I should remember all this because I lived <laughs> in Germany. Anyway, so the question is, how do we know that the ball will follow a mechanical real structure when we strike the ball? So there are various factors, the resistance of the air and the resistance of the football ground and the gravity. So uh, Kemp's thesis is there is a resonance between internal intuitive structures and external phenomenal structures. And that is a perfect resonance that combines the mathematical formalism and the mechanical realism. And this But obviously there's an interplay between the two, right? I mean, the this is an interplay between, between the two, provided there are times where one dominates the other. In Hooke's case, and he was an experimental scientist, he believed only in experiments. Hmm. So the mechanical part dominates. In Newton's case, the mathematics dominated. So how to strike a balance between these two? That's a question. And if we were to carry this word intuition into your world, Samir, and we do, I don't want to get too far away from what we're trying to think about, to when, when you think of, like, we go back to your favorite beast, the black hole, or for that matter, we go to, like, an atom and somewhere inside it or strings, do you have an intuition for that appearance? Do you have an intuition for what it looks like? Or do you have an intuition for what the surface or the horizon of a black hole that we've touched upon a few times looks like? Is it smooth? Is the, is the surface of a black hole smooth? So again, in Einstein's theory of gravity, it was completely smooth. Then people started trying to uh, get away from the troubles at the singularity where things were infinity, for example, by asking, will quantum mechanics change it in some way? And the interesting thing is, even with all that, it remained smooth. So the You mean the horizon? The horizon. And nothing very much changed at the singularity. Instead of becoming an infinite density point, it became a point of very high density. And that's fine. You may think that sort of solves your puzzle, that at least you don't have an infinity there. But then Stephen Hawking found that the fact that there was smoothness still at the horizon, that destroyed quantum mechanics itself. Right. And so putting quantum mechanics together with gravity instead of solving the puzzle of gravity ended up destroying quantum mechanics itself. So in that sense, if you ask, is the horizon smooth? This is the information paradox. This is the information paradox. It's a very loaded question because in classical gravity, it is smooth. You add the normal intuition of quantum mechanics, it remains smooth. And yet, you know that somehow that can't be right. Right. So, uh, you need to go further and understand much better the integration of quantum mechanics with gravity to develop a proper theory of quantum gravity, which is what we hope string theory is, to finally come to some better conclusion about how the surface of the horizon might or might not be smooth. So we knew that somehow there is a problem with thinking it to be smooth. And the problem is we couldn't find an alternative because even with quantum mechanics, nothing can move faster than the speed of light to the best of our knowledge. So the original idea 
that everything will get sucked in and get cleared out because it has to keep going further and further in. Nothing can stand inside the horizon. That still remained. So uh, until one can find some completely different way of solving the puzzle, just adding quantum mechanics didn't seem to be getting rid of the problem. So how do you think of this today? What is what is your personal take on this? So I actually worked with string theory, which is a model for quantum gravity. And in string theory, finally, over the last uh, one or two decades, a different picture of the black hole did start opening up. And in this picture, the surface of the black hole is actually not smooth. So we think of it now with as just a big tangle of strings and brains, the basic object of string theory. And, and are all strings the same? Is there only one kind of string? So that is the beauty of it. Is there string is, a fundamental, I don't know whether particle is the right word, yeah, fundamental particle? Yes. So string is a fundamental particle. Of st in string theory, the particles don't have to be point-like. They can be extended in size. So a string would be a one-dimensional extended object, a two-dimensional brain, you could have a two-dimensional sheet and so on. But the main idea of string theory is that objects are not point-like, they're fundamental objects, but they could have size, they could be extended. But the beauty of it is that there is only one way to be able to do this. An extended object is complicated, and you might think if you make many theories of complicated objects, how would you know which one is correct? Right. But the beauty here is that once you try to make a quantum theory of extended objects, it turns out to be completely unique. So there's only one way to make a consistent theory. And that's why we believe in string theory to the extent that we do. These objects are so small, the strings, that we have not been able to see them in the lab and we don't have any hope of seeing them in the near future in the lab. But the fact that if you try to think in that direction, only one unique theory comes out. So then all strings are the same because there's no other way to make the theory of strings. They all have to have the same, these properties. And that's the only thing then you have to work with. And when you work with that, the star tells to have certain, the string star has certain properties. And does it help one get, get around this information paradox of Hawking in some way? Yes, so in that case, one ends up solving the information paradox because Hawking was finding that paradox not for any normal object like a neutron star, but for objects which had the vacuum all the way inside down to their center. Right. So if you have a kind of horizon which is a point of no return, and you have the vacuum on both sides of this point of no return, that's a necessary and sufficient condition to create Hawking's puzzle. Anytime you can have now, that... vacuum on both sides, even on the outside of the horizon. Right. So the outside is a natural thing because we take a black hole sitting out in the middle of nothing sure. in empty space. And the inside was emptied out because everything fell in. Sure. And once you have this kind of a point of no return and you have the outer and the inside and they are both the vacuum, it turns out the vacuum becomes unstable and it creates particle pairs. One member of the pair gets created on the outside and one on the inside. A little bit like Casimir effect in the... Yes, it's also a vacuum fluctuation effect. Sure. So the vacuum fluctuations create these pairs and the member of the pair which is outside then just goes out. It's called Hawking radiation. So there's some kind of entanglement between the two. And these two members of the pair are entangled. So that's now very does, crucial. Does the, does the fellow inside continue to fall towards the center? The guy inside does fall towards what the center. What happens to the one outside then? The one outside just leaves and comes out to <laughs> us as Hawking radiation. So that's what right. Hawking's discovery in 1974 was, that black holes are going to emit radiation by a very natural process where the vacuum around this point of no return, the horizon, is automatically unstable to making these pairs. One member falls in and the other comes to us. Now, is this similar to some kind of a process of the black hole evaporating? This is exactly what is so called black hole So this is matter evaporation. actually burning up. 
right well so this is called black hole evaporation but the funny thing is the there's no matter which is burning because this fluctuations were fluctuations of uh, the vacuum came out of vacuum which came was not out matter to begin with and that was the whole problem because if you come out of some matter now it's different from a meteorite or something falling into a planet no which also would burn because of all the friction that's right that. it's different because when a meteorite burns what comes out of the meteorite will depend on what was in the meteorite at the first point if the meteorite was made of iron it would radiate iron if the meteorite was made of copper it would radiate copper but when these particles come out of the vacuum the vacuum is neither iron nor copper so every kind of particle will come out with equal probability it radiates like as if it was a thermal body with no information in it now now this fluctuation does it create only a certain kind of pair what kind of pairs are created so it's very interesting it creates every pair it's just that it prefers the lighter pairs to the heavier ones it's just a question of energetics because finally going to just come out of the gravitational field a gravitational field sees only energy which is basically like mass just think of e equals mc square so energy and mass are the same thing for us so heavier particles have a lower chance of being produced and lighter particles have a bigger chance of being produced but as long as two particles have the same mass they have the same rate of production now is the black hole composed of anything like does it have a certain kind of materiality like the the inside all black holes are not identical right now obviously they have different masses but what it's made of now you say it's made of strings and brains now they're all strings and brains of the same kind yes so, so the other way to put it is that are all black holes identical except for just the mass Yes, I think the what you touched on is the crucial point, which is relevant to resolving the information paradox. Hmm. So, if you use the classical picture of the black hole, where all the mass of the star went towards the center, and then there was a vacuum everywhere else, then yes, you could say all the black holes are basically the same as far as their behavior everywhere outside the center is concerned, because everything is the vacuum, and the vacuum is unique. And that's why there was an information problem, because if any pairs are created in this vacuum. they carry no information about what went into the center in right, the first place right so when the black hole disappears you have lost the information of what the star was made of now in the string theory it's different because as you try to crush all the material to the center it turns into these strings and the strings stretch out and fill up the whole black hole and even though there's only one kind of string the shape of the string it's after all like a stretchy object like a rubber band the exact shape of the string will depend on what the star was made of in the first place so it was made of more copper than iron the string would have one kind of shape and if it were made of more iron than copper they would have different shape so when a ball made of strings is going to radiate the radiation would depend on the shape of the strings in there which has the information of what the star was in the first place and so now there is no information loss right so the important thing was it is matter of some kind could be strings or anything else which should produce the radiation rather than the radiation coming out of a vacuum now do you string theorists have a certain number of shapes that these strings are supposed to have or is that an infinite array no it's very interesting that the number of states was discovered by both states and shapes right so which and shapes right but the number of states of a black hole before we even knew anything about string theory was discovered by in a very interesting paper by jacob beckenstein in 1972 hmm. so he It's used to entropy in a way entropy So he found that if you know nothing about the black hole, except for the fact that things go in and don't come out, from there he could actually calculate and show that it, the whole black hole must have this much entropy. Entropy counts for disorder, which is a measure Number of how of many states. states it could have. Right. So we've somehow known how many states a black hole should have way before we knew what the states were made of. <laughs> and so the beautiful thing is that when we finally understood black holes in this way by string theory, one of the things that came along with it. 
This is the work of two scientists called Strominger and Waffa. They actually found a number of states of these strings uh, are exactly equal to the number that Brekenstein would have predicted. So it's a beautiful consistency for the entropy of the black hole. So it sort of closed a beautiful loop that we knew we should have this many states and we get exactly this many states. Now, I know the notion of entropy doesn't carry so much to the mechanics world, but I think in a way the notion of point-like objects and extended objects yeah. does. Mm -hmm. No, that, now, that um, I see the, this uh, transition from the mathematical to material science that mm -hmm. happened in around 18th century, the wonderful works written by a great historian of science, Stephen Gaukroger, on this. But then uh, I was so amazed by your description of black holes and all. I wish I could experience that. Yeah. So with I that, I want we, to... We will all take a trip inside a black hole exactly. with some here. So I want to make a point, I mean, the problem of philosophy with the science. The philosophy has two fundamental issues with this phenomena in the nature. One is the cognizability, the uh, the knowability, which is an epistemic problem. The other one is an ontological, which is the existence. So in the medieval scholasticism, where these discourse on void and space, time, gravity, impetus never ended because they consider both existence and cognizability as equally important. But with Descartes and the modernity, what happened, the knowability has a primacy over existence. Yeah, we should know things, then only we can guarantee that exists. Now the question is, how far we can know? In terrestrial mechanics, we can experience the phenomena on the Earth, but not in celestial mechanics. So we have our limitations. So I would say a kind of referentiality. You know, whether we actually reach the phenomena, reach the existence of the phenomena, uh, to know how it is. So the cognizability and the existence, these two factors, they have to be balanced in any scientific investigation. But most of the time what happens is uh, we are more comfortable with the knowability because we human beings have this epistemology as a kind of subjective faculty. And the danger is there are many factors that can affect this faculty. And right. one is definitely the beauty of mathematics <laughs> and the security of mathematics because the human we have this natural tendency to be secure in life and in our investigation and in our any endeavor we have. So we, uh, from Plato till date, we are fascinated by these mathematical models. And that proves to be true and, you know, experimentally. And that adds to our confidence. But the problem is still the nobility is not adequate to reach the existence. And for the existence, we need actual experience. The famous example is the 15, 15th centuries, the Ptolemy's model of, uh, you know, the geocentric system. And then uh, Copernicus uh, completely revolutionized by the us. Copernican term. Yeah, the, the, the heliocentric. But then the structures were perfect circles and the uh, uniform motion of planets and all. Till Kepler, who used the empirical data given to him by Tycho Brahe and discovered, and there is no circle, hardly everything any circle. Everything, everything is elliptical and sun eccentric, <laughs> yeah, and the sun is in one center. So this can happen, you know. One, that's why there is always a belief system and knowledge system in the history of science. And uh, the belief system, we are more comfortable with belief systems. But the knowledge system arises when this belief confronts with the reality. And that's the moment where we have either a justification or a revolution of science. I think the interesting thing is that 
can we be sure and going back to the black hole thing and you know i think this is such a helpful backdrop that yes there is a center is that, is, is that if it's spherical then obviously it's a center it's like the begging the question but if one, if one were to think of the universe itself uh, obviously there's no center now for example a milky way galaxy or whatever that is is that a black hole in the center yes there's supposed to be a black hole in the center of our galaxy with a mass about a million times the mass of the sun so would it suck it all in would everything fall into that in the long run well like what, is what, sort what, of what? orbiting so it that's why it is sucking things but not at a terrific rate uh it's slowly sucking in it is slowly growing do black holes stop sucking in things because it should stop. be a continuous forever process isn't it like it why is. why would black holes give up and what 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 would make uh, a black hole the equivalent of a dead star which is not doing anything anymore a black hole always be sucking that is true but what usually happens is that it can only suck in things which come very close to it and there also evaporation uh, well the evaporation is very case. slow so it's not a very important part of the story in practical terms but what happens is black holes normally suck in gas which is around it right if you take the next star it is normally so far away and it has some relative motion so it's more like orbiting so it's like the moon is being pulled towards the earth but it's not actually falling in sure so other stars just moving on its own track the black hole is doing what it is but again the question is what happens in the very long run right in billions and trillions of years now the universe itself is just 13 14 odd billion years old in the very long run what happens does, in the does very everything run, just go far right in the very long run everything is everything is falling to towards everything else is everything yes. going to fall into one black hole one after another in this very long slow process okay so i would say yes and no so if i could clarify those two parts with what we believe till about a couple of decades ago the answer would have been yes so for example if you take our nearest galaxy the andromeda it is falling towards the milky way and at some point they will fall they will merge and inside the galaxies if you waited for enough time then so there will be a merger of milky way and andromeda yeah there will be a merger and then uh that doesn't take too long about as much as time has passed from the beginning of the universe till now if you wait just that much longer those two might also merge but then for all that to merge into one black hole yes in principle but that might take much longer okay but all that is fine the funny thing which happened over the last couple of decades is this thing that we learned about called dark energy and dark energy is making the universe expand at a rate which instead of slowing down is speeding up and because of that if we wait for sufficient time everything would start going trying to go further and further away from each other at speeds which are also increasing and so galaxies which are not as close as andromeda instead of ultimately finally slowly drifting towards us like we'll drift towards them we will merge and make one thing instead of that if we are actually separating and the speed of separation is also increasing so there's a simultaneous process of falling in and falling out that's right there's somebody this dark energy is expanding the universe so fast that no way we are moving out even though the gravity may be trying to bring us closer this dark energy effect will win out so if somebody not as close to us as andromeda where the gravity effect would win out some other cluster of galaxy which is quite far away it would basically keep receding and our mutual gravitational attraction will never make us join so what happens in the super long run like what happens right at the end so with what we means. see now uh, as the data it seems that we will the universe will become a very cold and empty place because you soon the galaxies will be so far from each other you can't see them so the sky will become completely black well we'll see our own stars because they are bound to us by gravity 
but anything far enough that the dark energy effect wins over the gravity effect those things will recede so far that we have no hope of seeing them and so it's a very lonely universe where everybody is living in his own little galaxy or cluster but uh, anything sufficiently far away has now receded so it's a very uh, sterile kind of universe and that's where we seem to be headed to based on what we see in the sky right now and do you struggle with this question that babu mentioned uh, this obviously you've done the math and you have access to some experimental studies uh, you chat with your colleagues what is your intuition i mean how do you know that what you know is right actually when babu was saying that it, it was very interesting to me because it reminded me of something that uh, you might like as a student of philosophy in string theory we found a very interesting thing called duality and duality means that two things might look uh the same while the structure might be very different so the standard example of that is the following in quantum mechanics everything is described only by a frequency so we know different colors of light are different frequencies this was einstein's equation e equals h nu so you have certain frequency levels and that defines the system now what if you have two completely different objects with the same frequency levels so the standard example i use for this is i suppose i hear in other room a piano so i make a mental picture if i go to that room i know i'll see keys and there will be strings and somebody sitting the keys and the sound coming out so with this expectation i go to that room and i actually find there's a keyboard there it's made of electronics there are no wires anywhere so the internal capacitors. mechanism could be something else for the same Completely output else. it has the same frequencies so i can't tell the difference now it could be two black holes with the same radiation could be something very so, different interiors exactly so what happens there is that if you take for example a photon with certain frequency or you take a string a string now, is like a rubber band in this case like a philosopher what you get to see is only the radiation so that's the observable that's, that's right. the only thing you, you can observe. only see the frequencies and so like if two different things are produce the same frequencies they are really in some sense indistinguishable so, so when you have two different mechanical systems which can give the same frequencies we say they are related by a duality so a string is a rubber band we can vibrate at some frequencies if i vibrate a string at a certain frequency and a photon is also a vibration at some frequency the same frequency suppose i cannot really distinguish between a string and a photon so there is a symmetry map by which i can interchange all strings and replace them by photons and vice versa so we call this a duality so quantum mechanics brings us lots of these dualities but that's still not an ontology answer i mean you still don't know what it is in reality that is true but in physical terms it makes for a very interesting answer to the kind of questions you were asking earlier what happens when you fall into the black hole so you may be falling towards the black hole what might be happening is one thing if it's a string star you will mix up with the strings you may start vibrating with the strings will start vibrating and so on but it's possible that what you feel is not that you got stretched into some string that started vibrating and you pulled apart into strings and you broke up into pieces what you might actually feel is not so different from what einstein initially thought with the theory of gravity that you are floating in freely and you might say how can that be well i'm also made of fundamental particles they're dynamically described by some frequencies and if when i got merged with more strings and i became a string star if those strings were vibrating with the same frequencies as i was originally vibrating with were in, inside me i wouldn't know the difference so this is an idea called complementarity it was put out by 
a scientist called Tuhuft and later developed by a scientist called Suskind that what yeah, you Suskind, yeah. what you actually feel and what is actually happening do they really have to be the same thing because they can always be a duality but and, in the case of black hole what you see and feel i mean the the access you have is you have access to the information inside the horizon and outside the horizon yes so i think the way it has to work in my opinion is that there's an approximation involved in reality if you follow everything exactly by putting it in a giant computer if i fall towards a black hole i join with the strings there i get broken into strings and all that happens and now there is no information paradox because there's no vacuum anywhere but the vibrations of these strings they now carry my information and it is natural that my frequencies which were in me will become the frequency of vibrations of these strings and you might ask why should that be this is a different object it will have its own frequencies why should they be equal to my frequencies and that's just because of resonance if i'm uh, speaking at some frequency here and there was a piano string of all different frequencies lying there the one whose frequency matches me will start picking up my thing and start resonating now this journey from particular to universal gravitation was was there an element of a resonance like notion involved well uh, not exactly but it's so interesting what he said uh, this happened i mean of course in the history of mechanical philosophy that uh, the shift of framework from a macro structure to the micro structure the macro structure was the early mechanics where uh, the mathematical models ruled where the reality was important this question is so important because do two things have the same same reality and different structurality i mean the structures but then whether we consider these structures important or whether we are happy with the reality so that is newton's position he tried his best to differentiate between magnetism and gravitation and to find the causation of gravity and magnetism failed miserably finally he said satisfied it's enough so we have the reality of gravity and we can mathematize it we can live with that reality and we can use that reality without ever knowing the why without answer. ever knowing the the, the answer to the why question the answer to the why question but the science never stops at that you know that is the transition from the mechanical to the material science you are going within the matter and uh, finding out what happens within the matter and that's the revolution that happened you know leading to the modern modern physics so there's always this reality and causality problem in it and in ideal condition the reality should merge with the causality and forming a final phenomenon which hardly happens what is the status of ontology today in general in philosophy well Because the, these are these all questions. ontological problems these are all ontology so we you know the problem with philosophy is we advance and we never advance in philosophy you know <laughs> five, even after 2700 or 800 years we still ask the question what the first pre-socratic philosophers asked in the greece what's the basic substance of this plurality of forms in the world and the substances for thales it was water anaxagoras it was something else and for heraclitus it was fire and etc etc so the ontological question remains uh, whether Uh, as a question or an aporia and that's different how does one know that these questions have answers no again i don't mean answers in the question answer sense but how does it well how uh, do how does it know that these are resolvable now or you know, when you say when you ask uh, whether there are answers in philosophy whether there are final answers that's a question you should ask so there are philosophers like aristotle uh, brilliantly 
postulating form and substance. So there is an ontological difference between form and substance that we are still struggling with. As he suggested, the form relates to the reality, but not the substance. The substance could be different. But we never stop at this inquiry of the form. Uh, we want to know what lies beneath this form. I think some people would have an objection. I think Samir himself just mentioned that you don't know what a string looks like and you, you just say it's some rubber band, it's vibrating, this, that, and there's no way to observe it. Mm. And a lot of people would have a complaint with people like Samir and other string theorists saying, you, do, you can never observe this, how can you be sure this is all correct, it's all just math and whatever, whatever. Now, that's an ontology question. Now, how is one supposed to ever establish that there is such a thing as string and brains. Um, well, the, the ontology and something that is very close to the ontology is a monism, mm. that there is one, one phenomena that we have to give up. We have to accept different ontologies. So in our everyday life, the color has a different existence than the material because color is subjective, but it's a reality. The same way we have to accept that gravity has a different reality, a different ontology. So you cannot reduce everything into one. And that, uh, I mean, philosophy always tries that, but I don't think that will succeed. We have to accept the plurality of ontology, of existences. And that doesn't mean that you have to accept the existence of God and angels that can exist, which was a debate in the medieval scholasticism. Uh, how do the uh, angels exist in this world if they have no <laughs> extension. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure they spend a lot of time looking for angels. Or 300 years they debated almost. How yeah. does one know that strings are not angels? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the question, right? I'm, I mean, somebody, I'm somebody reasonably smart, three four hundred years ago, spent a lot of time looking for angels. I mean, I mean, they were not trying to be. Stupid. No, I think that's a very good question. But I think exactly as Babu was saying, we are looking for a mathematical framework. And if the mathematical framework serves our purpose, maybe we won't actually ask any further about whether this is quote-unquote real. So in this case, you could ask what has strings done to us, which we can say we want to believe in this way of thinking. And for example, we just talked about the, the information paradox. The information paradox. Yeah. And even before that, the Beckerstein entropy. Yes. So we already know how These much... These are solutions. They are solutions. They so will resolve something. By abstract arguments, Beckerstein managed to prove that if the second law of thermodynamics was to be preserved, the entropy always rises a black hole should have this much entropy, which means this many states. And now when you make it out of the strings of string theory, you find if you put this much energy in the string, as much as equal to the mass of the black hole, again, E equal mc squares, so we're talking of energy and mass, the same breadth. If I take the energy which I have in the black hole, and I try to put, say, how many states I'll get for rubber band with that much energy, I find the exact number that Beckerstein derived on abstract theoretical grounds from the second law of thermodynamics. So that we... In our world, we would count as a success and a validation of the mathematical model that the elementary particles are strings and not point-like objects. Because point-like objects, we could not get that number. So in that sense, the model has helped us. And beyond this point, we wouldn't Did really worry. Did you arrive at the idea of strings theoretically or it was a hack to begin with and then one has gone from there? So it was almost theoretical. It's interesting that the strings which we use about in string theory today they actually had an origin in something else. So there's the theory of strong interactions. Sure. Which is the force between quarks. And people found something very funny that you could never find a single quark. You always find a quark which is bound inside maybe a proton. But if you try to pull a quark out of the proton... It came with something else. It came with maybe another quark. It just pulled something along. It almost felt like between two quarks, there was a rubber band. <laughs> which is very funny because normally forces between particles fall off when they are separated. 
But here they found the force actually does not change however far you take it away. That's like a rubber band. You can keep stretching it, but as if the band is always coming with you. So this, they model the force of strong interactions by a string which is stretching between two quarks. And they developed the whole theory of this string. And it's useful to some extent. But at some point people realized, hey, if we can use it for uh, strong interactions, what about thinking of strings on their own and seeing if they can actually help us with other things like gravity? And then from there, string theory moved into the theory of gravity. Does intuition help in your theory building? Do you have an intuition that guides you? Of course, a lot of this is math and you need to go from one step to another. No, very much so. I think the problem is you first have to know what to apply the math to because the math is very complicated. It's an enormous tool. Sure. And so it's intuition which guides you almost to the end, 99% of the way, which tells you, I think this should happen. And once you're really sure about this should happen, then you start looking for the simplest mathematical model which can check that out for you. And then you start putting the mathematical tools on it. And if you're lucky, uh, then you get your validation. But really, 99% of our journey is the intuition. Why don't we end with you, Babu? What's going to happen? What's the super long-term future? Well, I just, I just thought of the, the various factors that are necessary uh, for everything. For example, on Earth, for example, here I can run. I say that I can run. Uh, in a swimming pool, I can swim. But the point that to run, I need a place, Earth, or a... a certain kind of rigidity, friction. Yeah, friction. And to swim, I need water, you know. Buoyancy. Yeah, or to fly, you need for, uh, air. So if I... No, no, I cannot say that because of my power, like the, my physical power, I do all these things. If I am thrown into the space where there is neither water, nor air, nor Earth, you what do fall. I do? I am just reduced to a body. You I cannot do body. anything. So these are the difference between what we observe on the Earth and, and in the space. So uh, I would say that uh, the ability of human mind to speculate and to correctly speculate uh, has its limits. But then limits means uh, it can also cross these limits to find new phenomena, provided we ha there, there should be a kind of nexus between the knowability and the existence. And existence remains still as an ontological problem. And when you think of, when you say intuition guides you, do you imagine yourself as yourself? Do you imagine yourself as a string or a black hole or something? What's the nature of that intuition? Take us in there and we'll end. Yes. Now, I know it depends on the nature of the question, what particular thing you're at and so on. So I'm not trying to get a meta answer. Right. No, it's a very important question as to where because, you, you know, separate I think the... the reason I ask that is, you know, when Babu says that, you know, if you if you want to run, then you run, that if you want to swim, you swim, but it needs different media. So one imagines oneself, one is carrying oneself. So one is an actor in that intuitive kind of world, you have some kind of phenomenology for it. Now, if you are doing some math concerning Hawking radiation or this and that inside a black hole, where are you in that? Yeah, it's a very important question that science has taught us, especially quantum theory, that you have to separate the observer of course. from what he's observing. Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, I, if I think of myself as falling in, I'll always miss some part of the question. Of course. Because if I interact with something, then we have the normal Schrodinger cat paradox. After the interaction, I may be left in one state if the remaining system is in some other state, or I may be left in yet a different state. I think the, the question is whether you're able to else. take yourself out of the equation. 
so i think you must it may be very difficult to i i, I think know. i think so when we think of something falling into a black hole i think of somebody else falling into the black hole what is that somebody else <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not me mm-hmm. so i have to think of somebody else because if i'm the person going in then it's very hard for me to answer the question what do i feel and the same point also answer the question what is happening to me because what i feel has to be phrased very differently using different tools from the question of what is overall happening to me plus the black hole because i as a system can only see a part of the black hole and that will never have the whole physics in it so we always have to think about some other body perhaps you falling into the black hole and now i have to keep all the degrees of freedom yours plus the black holes and then i can write an explanation for everything that is going on if i focus only on the degrees of freedom that you can interact with which means what you can see i will never actually be able to explain enough to actually be able to resolve all the paradoxes that might arise so it's the question of being able to focus on more than the object that's going in because that object can only interact with some degrees of freedom and that's never enough to actually get a complete consistent physical picture so what are the open questions sitting here today if one thinks of the next i don't know hundreds of years of course the universe is hopefully going to be hang around for a very very long time for us i think the biggest question now might not be in this be, context in this question of falling gravity i think for us the biggest questions all have to do with the maybe the ultimate place where everything fell out from the big bang because at that point where you know all the gravity was very strong going towards infinity and you know everything was moving very fast the questions that we get at that point are questions we don't even know how to ask within physical law for example if you ask why is the universe the way it is what set the initial conditions for the universe to explode from a small point towards a big ball we don't actually have any tools to answer that question so it's very philosophical we have to find some way of asking questions which are different from the questions we've been used to in physics we say we are given these initial conditions how will they evolve to something later on but now the question that we really have before us is are so why these initial the conditions true so what is the question So one question that people have really been trying to address is how do you decide what mass the total universe should have we can observe certain mass around us can we prove that if the universe had to come out from some probabilistic kind of stuff this size and this mass was the most likely and in fact it's interesting people are able to do calculations and make arguments for this that if the mass of the universe was different it would have collapsed so fast we couldn't see anything today sure and so this is the whole thing called the anthropic principle if we yeah. had somehow any chance of seeing us. anything but it has never been fine tuned enough to really say well the mass the universe had to have exactly this many particles so if you say the universe starts at this time with this many particles physics can tell us what happens later string theory can do that for you if it's a correct theory but no one can tell us how many particles you want to start with unless we have these either probabilistic ideas or anthropic ideas and that's a whole new direction of philosophy that i think we have to address now because now all the interesting questions are sooner or later going to go back to these kinds of uh, so babu and philosophy. his colleagues have to help have to help <laughs> you what are the open questions babu again well this, uh, i would say now the obviously uh, this whole notion of falling has gone no, through I mean, we have in philosophy interesting methods very fundamental maybe it appears to be quite silly which is reductio ad absurdum no that means reducing to the absurdity i don't want to do that but still i ask Uh, to what extent we can discover things that is one question in philosophy but do then do you think some of these questions are fundamentally unknowable 
Uh, no, no, well, no. I wouldn't say that, but still we discover things and the things which were not knowable earlier, which are knowable now. But then the nature has a principle, uh, not that we discover the nature all the time. Nature means the cosmos also. But it has a principle of masking also. Uh, so that that makes our lives bearable, you know, livable and all. What do you mean by masking? Uh, for example, uh, I would say a kind of phenomenal mask uh, that the nature has as a principle. I mean, think of our body, for example, and we live with our body without any problem. And uh, suppose if we, if we believe in the rationality of the body and why our skin has to be opaque, it can be transparent. Imagine the skin and the flesh is transparent. We see all the blood circulation, what is happening inside, our heart, our sure. bones and all. Now, still we live with this reality, but nature doesn't want that. And nature actually masks this reality. So now the question is why our investigation, scientific investigation, ends mostly in aporias and that we cannot solve. I would say it will drive us, uh, drive ahead yeah, in the investigation, but still it will give us a kind of realization that we have to live with this aporias. Yeah? And nature conveniently masks the aporias. Yeah, whether on Earth or in the space, yeah. Uh, so uh, science has this two dimension: a very uh, ambitious theoretical way and a practical way also. And and we have to consider both these aspects. In the practical field, we may have to accept that uh, certain phenomena, which are not, uh, exp uh, which cannot be explained. Uh, we need that phenomena for our existence and, and we have to accept that too. Now, in, this, in the context of falling, mm. in the context of falling objects and things, now whether or not human beings existed, there would have been such a thing as falling. Yeah. Do you think, the, what is your intuition on that? Do you think the answer to why do things fall, does, no, it, have, have, does it have an ontological... No, what we have done in, throughout the history of mechanics is we have given different answers in different frameworks. And that starts from the mechanical framework and ending up in the geometrical. Yeah. So I was just amused uh, to see when Professor Mathur, uh, first he said for Einstein it is geometrical or mathematical or it's not a force, but then all other references relate to force, like falling into the black hole. Uh, on, uh, understand what I say. So the problem is like uh, we only shift this context and What paradigms. do you think comes after geometry? What do you think lies ahead? What's your intuition? Well, we are committed to the science. We, we are not, like earlier, we cannot just say, oh, it's a, a spiritual phenomena. Yeah? It's a kind of divine phenomena that we cannot say. Because, because that's more faith-based. Yeah, that's more faith-based and that is old and outdated. You know? So, but uh, science and, and mathematical science and material science helped us to overcome this age of faith and we are in the age of science. Now, of course, we cannot find our final answers, and we may not find our final answers, even particularly for this phenomenon like gravity. But still, we, can, we have to accept the reality, and the same way we have to accept the reality of black holes and other phenomena that we are going to uh, you know, discover uh, in, in future. Whether these are explained adequately through mathematical models or other models, yeah, uh, but we, in the confrontation with the reality, I think, um, uh, like, our uh, quest will continue f 
further and further, uh, provided that uh, we always get disappointed with, you know, these aporetic endings. Uh, but most important is that we are in that process of finding things more, more and more. Yeah. Good, good. Think, terrific. That's a good note to end this on. Thanks to both of you for making it, and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for coming. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.